And let me ask you to open your Bibles with me, please, to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, this morning we'll be looking at verses 28 to 34. The message is entitled, So Close Yet So Far Away. As you're turning there, let me just uh, give you an overview of the next month or so. Uh, Next Sunday I will be here. We'll sadly spend our last time, at least with me, in the gospel according to Mark. The next two Sundays I'll be away for school and then the following Sunday, July 23rd, is when we will, I will return, and that will be our last Sunday together uh, with us and my family, at least. So that's what you have to look forward to, or that's at least what is coming in the next couple of weeks or so. Whether you look forward to it or not, I don't know, but uh, that's what's coming. So Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34 is our passage this morning as the As the showdown between Jesus and the Sanhedrin continues, this time a scribe, one scribe, approaches Jesus who seems to have a slightly different perspective so far than all the rest who have assaulted him with their words. It seems, I think, to give some hope that the fact that even though God was rejecting the temple, he was not rejecting Israel entirely as a people. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34 says this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that is your word. We thank you for this interaction that you have recorded for us between your son, our Lord Jesus, and this one scribe who seemed to have a genuine interest, who seemed to ask a genuine question, who seemed to affirm Jesus' answer, and yet, as Jesus says, was still not in the kingdom of God. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we would see the truth about Jesus today. And we pray, Lord, personally for every one of us here that you would help us to not be like the scribe, to not be able only to acknowledge the trustworthiness and truthfulness of the claims of Jesus, to not merely show an interest in Jesus, to not even affirm that love for you and for neighbor is more important than any sacrifices one would make, 
we understand from his response, Lord, that you can affirm all of those things and yet still not be in the kingdom of God. So, Lord, if there's anyone here who has presently or all of their life been interested in Jesus, affirmed the truthfulness of Jesus, affirmed the priority of love over works, and yet has still never bowed the knee to Jesus to recognize his authority as the Son of God, we pray that you would open their eyes. Lord, we know from what you said to the church in Ephesus that it is possible for Christians to be doctrinally sound and yet empty of love. So we don't want to do that either, Lord. Help us instead to be in awe of you in a right way and to respond to you, Lord, rightly so that we might live rightly as your people. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Teachers make a significant impression on you throughout your life. One of, if not the favorite teacher of mine, was in the fifth grade. His name was Mr. Mars. He was not that far off from retiring, and so I think that may have contributed to some of the things that he did that sort of made him one of my favorite teachers. He was not disinclined, if he needed to, to grab a student and help a student get in line if the student needed to. Of course, you can't do that anymore today. He also said multiple sayings and phrases that stuck with me, even though I probably didn't really know what they meant in the moment when he said them. One of those phrases that has stuck with me, that I've heard since, but I always attribute it to my favorite teacher, Mr. Mars, was this. Close is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades. You know it. Close is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades. At the time, I thought it was a really cool saying. And I knew that the old people played horseshoes down at the park. And I knew what a hand grenade did because I had seen Rambo. But I don't think I really quite understood the reality of the statement that when you're talking about getting something done, when you're talking about results, close is just not good enough, except if you're playing horseshoes, which doesn't have to be a ringer in order to score some points, or if you're throwing a hand grenade, which doesn't have to actually touch your victim in order to hit it with shrapnel. Close is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades. There are various things that, uh, varying levels of degrees of seriousness when we apply that statement. I mean, just think of it in itself. Horseshoes, hand grenades. There's a little bit more on the line when we're talking hand grenades than when we're talking horseshoes, right? And so the statement implies varying degrees of importance. As we look at this passage before us this morning, we have something that is of the utmost importance. 
a man comes to Jesus, is impressed with Jesus' answer to his enemies, seems to then ask Jesus a question, genuinely curious about what his answer would be, because so far, they think, the religious leaders think, that Jesus has come to undermine Israel, undermine Judaism completely, to throw out the Torah. And Matthew has Jesus explain that he, doesn't, he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus is not some Jewish renegade who rejects Israel. Jesus is the true Jew who fulfills Israel. And so the scribe asks him a question and seems to genuinely agree with Jesus' answer and, and seems to think that he can just leave it at that. But then Jesus turns the tables on him and says to him, seems to be in a similar way that he answered the rich young ruler with love in his heart. Jesus says to him, based on his response, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But close is only good with horseshoes and hand grenades. You can be not far from the kingdom of God and still be at home in hell. In fact, if you're not in the kingdom of God, then that is the very place where your soul will rest. And so as we look at this last conflict in the temple, at least having been engaged from the crowd, from the religious leaders to Jesus, Jesus in the next passage will turn the tables on them and he'll ask them a question and then he'll condemn the scribes before watching a widow throw her life savings, really all that she had into the coffers. As this last group, this one scribe comes to Jesus to question him, you remember that we've been engaging and walking through this conflict between Jesus and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees first taught to trap him in what he said and the Sadducees, uh, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, excuse me, the Sadducees then last week as we saw questioned Jesus about something they didn't even believe in, the resurrection. But then as Mark presents this scribe, this, this one member from the other group of religious leaders, the scribes having already had significant conflict with Jesus, the scribes already figuring out, plotting how to destroy Jesus. You'll notice that Mark doesn't say the scribes came up to him, but he says one of the scribes came up to him. He focuses in on one of that particular group. We know from the book of Acts, for instance, that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, even members of the Pharisees, members of the scribes were getting saved, were giving their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, were entering into the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. But there's this one last question that the scribe comes to ask him. And it's of the utmost importance, although he doesn't really seem to know it. Jesus lets the scribe know that what he's onto is the right path, he just needs to keep walking down it to see where it leads him. And so as we look at this passage before us this morning, I think we can learn three lessons on the kind of love that God requires. Three lessons on the kind of love that God requires. Jesus certainly affirms and teaches us love for God and love for neighbor, but in the context of this 
conflict in the context of this conversation between Jesus and the scribe, I think there's something else going on. And Jesus affirms that and shows it to us by his response back to this man. And so let's learn the first lesson then. We learn it in verses 28 to 30 on the question and then the beginning of Jesus' answer. The first lesson for us on the kind of love that God requires is that you must be consumed with love for God. You must be consumed with love for God. Beginning in verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him. You can see the picture in your mind, can't you? Jesus is surrounded by, this time, the Sadducees, though certainly the Herodians and the Pharisees were not very far away. There's a crowd that's surrounding Jesus, and the Sadducees have been disputing with Jesus about the resurrection, and Jesus has proven them wrong and told them that not only were they wrong, but that they were quite wrong. So you can imagine this dispute, this conflict, this argument or debate that's happening in the temple. And as the crowd is surrounding them watching, there's one man in the crowd in particular who is from the group known as the scribes. We've talked about them before, but just to remind you, the scribes were the experts in the law. Of all the people that knew their Bibles in Israel, it was the scribes who knew their Bibles best. They were the scholars of the day. If you couldn't remember where a passage was or what a passage said, you would go to a scribe to ask him what it said. They knew their Bibles in and out. This scribe was impressed with Jesus' answer, the way that he used the Bible to combat the false doctrine of the Sadducees to show them that even in the book of Moses, you can find the reality of the doctrine of the resurrection. And so the scribe's watching and he's thinking to himself, wow, this untaught, unlearned carpenter from Galilee seems to know what he's talking about here. And so then he steps in and he asks Jesus a question, which commandment is the most important of all? According to rabbinic tradition, there are 613 commandments in the Torah. 365 of them are prohibitions or negative commandments, and 248 of them are positive commandments. When you've got 613 commandments to obey, I think it's important for you to try to figure out how to distill that into the essence of it because it's really hard in your mind to run through a list of 613 things you're supposed to not do and to do. So this wasn't an uncommon question. It was a very common question. In fact, 20 years before Jesus, there was a famous rabbi named Rabbi Hillel, and he had an interaction with a Gentile one time that was a pretty famous interaction. The Gentile confronted the rabbi and told the rabbi that he would convert if the rabbi could recite the Torah while standing on one leg. So you remember the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, right? 
try reciting what you had for dinner last night while standing on one leg. It's somewhat difficult, especially the older you get, right? And so it was a, it was a, it was a setup, really. And I don't know, I couldn't find historically if Rabbi Hillel actually stood on one leg or not, but he answered the man's question, or really answered the man's challenge by saying, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law, the rest is commentary, go and learn it. That was his answer. About a hundred years After Jesus, Rabbi Akiba said that the Torah could be reduced down to Leviticus 19.18, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And then another hundred years after that, so about 200 years after Jesus, another rabbi reduced the Torah to Proverbs 3.6, in all your ways acknowledge God and he will make your paths straight. So this wasn't an uncommon question. This was a very common question. It was a question that they thought about a lot. It was a question that they had various answers to. And it was a question that the scribes seemed to genuinely want to know what Jesus' thoughts were on. And so Jesus gives him the answer. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is... And then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, which to the Jew is known as the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear or listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus' answer to the scribe who was curious was really not a surprising answer. And it was not by any means a passage that everyone listening to Jesus was not deeply familiar with. For them, it was like the John 3.16 of Bible verses. Every morning and every evening, faithful Jews would recite the Shema. They would recite the very words that Jesus just quoted. So this was not a new answer. What was new, and we'll look at that in the second point, what was new is that Jesus combined love for neighbor with love for God and said essentially that these two can't be separated. But let's start with Jesus' first part, the first part of Jesus' answer. Notice that Jesus begins, again, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, but notice how it begins. The scribe asked Jesus to summarize the greatest commandment, right? And Jesus gives him a commandment, but before the commandment, you shall love the Lord your God, comes the confession. Did you notice that? The confession, hear, O Israel, or listen up, O Israel which in the gospel according to Mark is a significant word, isn't it? Those who hear the word, think back to the parable of the soil. It's hearing the word that is crucial. And then hearing, true hearing, leads to a response of faith, which then produces fruit. So hear, O Israel, listen up, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a confession. 
It's a confession that acknowledges the covenant name of God. In Hebrew, it was Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. So it acknowledges the covenant name of God, a name that he revealed to Moses so that Moses could reveal it to his people, a name that only is fitting for his people to call him. But then not only does it acknowledge the covenant keeping God, it also acknowledges that he and he alone is God. There is no other God. And it acknowledges that he and he alone is one, completely united which I think Jesus is hinting at something here. That within the one God, there is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who has Mark from the very beginning of his gospel told you Jesus is? The Son of God. Don't think son like we think of son, someone born to a father, but think of son like one who has always existed eternally as the son of God. Jesus is hinting at the doctrine of the Trinity and the unity of God and the reality that he and the father are one. He's not born to the father like Mormons say or other cult groups say. But he's one with the Father, and he's always been one with the Father. And so it's important for us to understand that before you ever get to the commandment, first you have the confession. And isn't that the right way to go about living for God? It's not first do, it's first know and then do. Know God and then live for God, from the knowledge of the God, that God. Because if you cut out the no God and you just try to do for God, what do you have then? You have self-righteousness. You have a, a, an, an attempt to save yourself by your works, by your own obedience. And so Israel, whether they knew it or not, was always confessing and then looking to the command. And Jesus says the very same thing, the confession and then the command. And then you'll notice the command encompasses everything. Notice the word all repeated four times. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We could look at each individual aspect of this love. We could talk about and look at the heart. We could talk about the soul. We could talk about the mind. We could talk about the strength. And surely each one of those emphasizes a different aspect of who we are. But when taken together, what do they do? They make up the totality of who we are. And that's the point. The point is not so much to get lost in what's the difference between the heart and the soul. That's not the point at all. The point is to get you to think about this love for God based on a confession of God has to consume every part of you. Love for God must ooze out of every pore. Love for God must infiltrate every decision, every word, every thought, every action. 
Love for God must be all-consuming when you confess who God is. And that's what Jesus' point is. One commentator says that Jesus says this answer and emphasizes the word all four times because he's emphasizing the necessity of a total response of love to the lordship of God. And so what does Jesus want his listeners? What did Jesus want this scribe to know? What does Jesus want us to know? Something that we probably already know. And yet, how easy is it to know something and yet not really live in the light of what it is that you know? What Jesus wants us to know is that if you want to love the way that God says to love, then it needs to consume you. A love for God needs to totally define you and wrap you up and captivate you. And the grid through which you need to see all of life, including love for neighbor, which we'll move to in a second here, the grid for which you need to see all of life is, is love for God. Why do you do what you do? The answer for the Christian should always be, because I love God. So we understand that certainly, But let me ask you, do you love God supremely? Above everything else, does the way you spend your money show that supreme love? Does the way you budget your time show that supreme love? Does the way you are intentional to pray Show that supreme love? Does the way you take up your Bible and study it by yourself and with others show that supreme love? If you're like me, you would have to say, sometimes. And yet other times, I think it shows love for myself. Yet Jesus acknowledges this is the greatest commandment. And so this man is close to the kingdom of God, but he's not in the kingdom of God. And Jesus has some lessons to teach him, and we learn some lessons from this passage so that we would not be close to the kingdom of God, but would be in the kingdom of God. And the first of those lessons is that we must be consumed with love for God. And then the second, as we continue to work through Jesus' answer, the second lesson is this. You must love others in order to truly love God. You must love others in order to truly love God. The man didn't ask for two commands, But Jesus is giving him a buy one, get one free discount here. Verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus says if you want to understand what it is to love God, then you must also demonstrate love for your neighbor. 
Jesus first quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and now he adds into it Leviticus 19, 18. It's easy for us, it was easy for them, to think of living for God, whether in Jesus' day as a faithful Jew or living for God today as a faithful Christian. It's easy for us to think about the law, the commands of God, as simply things to do. But notice in Jesus' answer, he clearly tells us they're not just things to do, but in fact, they are expressions of love. So think about the way that the New Testament presents this reality to us. Jesus in John 13, 34 told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Or take the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that we know quite well. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Or what about what Paul said to the Colossians? Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Paul lays out what characteristics should mark those who are chosen, holy, and beloved by God. And then he says, out of all of those characteristics, the capstone, the umbrella that covers them all, is love. And then we just heard earlier, let's read 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Seen. The scribe asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment of all? And Jesus wants him to know that it is most important that you have an all-consuming love for God. But there's a second commandment that accompanies that and is the expression of that first commandment. It's love for neighbor as yourself. Notice that the Bible implies that you already love yourself. You don't have to love yourself despite the way the world tells you. You already do love yourself. Sometimes that love of self is corrupted and tainted, so much so that it distorts your field of vision so that you can, you know, sort of turn into 
a mope. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms kind of idea, right? And you can think in that moment, I don't love myself. What I need to do, the solution for this problem, so the solution for this depression or whatever it is, is to love myself. But the problem is your eyes are already fixed on yourself. You already do love yourself. And more love dumped into that love tank for self is only going to drive you deeper and deeper into that self-loathing. All the way to the ultimate expression of the corruption of self-love, suicide. So the Bible understands that we already do love ourselves. And so Jesus says the way that you love yourself, just love other people. That very same way. The way that you would want to be treated, treat other people that way. The way that you would want to take care of yourself, the things that you might enjoy, the things that you might want, think about that for other people and do it to them. Again, that same commentator, James James Edwards, says about Jesus combining these two commandments, it takes both commandments to realize the one will of God. The scribe wanted one. Jesus says, I'll give you one, but I'll give you the second one that must accompany the first one. And if you get either one of these wrong, then you ruin the whole thing. If you imagine that you can have an all-consuming love for God, but it never expresses itself out in love for those who have been created in the image of God, then you're fooling yourself, John says. Or if, on the other hand, you get your love for humanity so imbalanced and so strong that you sort of forget that God is the one who defines love, then you run to humanism and you end up with what we are seeing right now. Love is whatever you want to make it. So you'd have to balance both of those things together perfectly, don't you? So we've learned that love must be, uh, love for God must be all-consuming. You must love others in order to truly love God. And then here's the third lesson. And in fact, this third lesson is the most important lesson of all. The third lesson on the type of love that God requires comes to us in the man's response in verses 32 to 34. You must love Jesus in order for your love to matter. You must love Jesus in order for your love to matter. Now let's, let's follow along with this man's response. Jesus wows him with his answer and verse 32, the scribe says to him, you are right, teacher. So the scribe affirms Jesus is right. And then not only does he affirm Jesus is right, but he does so wholeheartedly by even quoting various scripture references himself and adding on top of what Jesus says in order to affirm Jesus' rightness about what he says, his good answer. He says, you have truly said that he is one. And there is no other besides him. Jesus, you've got your confession of the identity of God right. 
And then verse 33, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Notice he gets the connection between the two, love for God and love for neighbor. And not only does he get the connection between the two, but he also gets the priority of love. He says, Jesus, that is more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6, 6 to 8 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You see, this scribe knows his Bible, doesn't he? He knows his Bible. He knows that God is not deceived by an outward expression of religion. By offering your burnt offerings, performing your sacrifices. He knows that that can be hypocrisy if it's not accompanied by love. He gets it. And I would remind you, where are they having this discussion at? In the temple. The place where burnt offerings were burnt up. The place where sacrifices were brought. It's quite possible that those who were listening to this man's response, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, would not have liked his response very much. Now, wait a minute. You're saying that everything we're doing here is not as important as love? You see, the man gets it in a way, doesn't he? But what is Jesus' response to the man? Verse 34. The man first saw that Jesus answered well. Now Jesus sees that he answers wisely, intelligently. The man's got a well-thought-out answer. And it's not just a well-thought-out answer, but where does he get his answer from? He gets it from the Bible. It's a well-thought-out biblical answer. Are you getting it? This man knows his Bible. He meditates on it. He thinks about it. He knows it so well, he can interact with Jesus. And yet Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think that Jesus' answer is necessarily completely negative. I think Jesus' answer puts a barb in his side. I think Jesus' answer is meant to spur the man on. You're almost there. Keep going. But notice implied in Jesus' answer is that he might almost be there, but almost is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades. Verse 35 
almost does not get you into the kingdom of God. You can be an almost Christian and not be a Christian. That's the point here. Think with me for just a moment about the positive attributes of this scribe. Back in verse 28, he came up. He heard the dispute between the Sadducees and Jesus. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he then asked his question. So his question was prompted by what? By an interest in Jesus' answer. Essentially, he goes, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm going to ask him a question. So he's interested in Jesus, right? He's interested enough to ask Jesus a question, to stand out in that crowd and ask Jesus a question. And he asks him, I don't think it's a trick question. I think it's a genuine question. The way that Mark portrays this, I will give you, Matthew portrays it differently. And honestly, I don't know why they seem to give us different perspectives. But if you look at what Mark is doing, Mark wants you to think this scribe is interested. I just wonder, this is a wonder, that's it. There's no answer to it. I wonder if Mark knows who this one scribe is. And I wonder if that's why Mark says one of the scribes, because he's the only one that says one of the scribes. And this is the only time in the gospel of Mark that he highlights one of the scribes. Just a wonder, I just wonder if when Mark said one of the scribes, if his close friends had to just chuckle and say, oh yeah, that's Frank. He got saved shortly after. I don't think Frank is a Jewish name, but... You know what I'm saying. <laughs> Levi, I don't know. That's just, a, that's just a speculation. I don't know if that's true, but I just have to wonder. So he's interested in Jesus. He's interested enough to ask Jesus a question. And then after Jesus' answer, and you notice, it's, just, it's not just that he asked Jesus a question. He wants to know what Jesus thinks. Teacher, what are your thoughts on this? And then after Jesus gives his answer, how does the man respond? You're right. He's not just interested in Jesus' thoughts on the greatest commandment. He affirms Jesus' thoughts on the greatest commandment. So he's interested. He's affirming. He even understands that there's a distinction between love and work, which is why he says this, to, to love is better than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Love is the point, and love must motivate the burnt offerings and sacrifices. He even is theologically astute enough to discern the difference between genuine worship and hypocritical worship. That simply going through the motions because you're supposed to is not pleasing to God. But going through the motions because you love God, that is what's pleasing to God. He gets all of that, right? But notice the one thing he fails to do. Jesus tells him, you get those things, but you're still not in the kingdom of God. Notice back to the man's answer. Now, remember again, what are the scribes? The scribes are the scholars. 
They're the Bible answer men of that day. You have a Bible question, you go to a scribe. Who is the authority? Who does all of Israel know is the authority on the scribes, on the Bible, the scribes? So this man is in a a teaching position of authority, and that's what he's used to, right? So notice the way that he responds back to Jesus. You are right, teacher. And then he doubles down with the affirmation that Jesus is right. Now, why does he do that? Because he thinks that he has greater authority than Jesus. Despite his genuine interest, despite his curiosity in Jesus, he still thinks of himself as being in a higher position of authority than Jesus is. Which is why Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not in the kingdom because you're not recognizing that the one you're talking to is the king of the kingdom. And instead of bowing to my authority and recognizing who I am and humbling yourself and responding the way that Mark tells you, the way that Jesus tells you, you must respond to the gospel, repent of your sins, and believe in the gospel of Jesus. All you're simply doing is affirming the rightness of Jesus. Where am I going with this? Friend, I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. You can affirm the rightness of Jesus. You can be interested in Jesus and yet still not love Jesus. You can say, Jesus is a good teacher. I want to do what Jesus tells me to do and yet completely miss that he's not just that. He's also the king of the kingdom. That's why I say I think this third lesson is the most important. Because if you don't get Jesus right, then it does not matter how many of God's commands you get right. It does not matter how many theological ducks in a row you have. It does not matter if you are genuinely and truly right about your interpretation of the Bible because the culmination of love for God rests in love for Jesus. If you don't rightly confess Jesus, then it does not matter if you get it right about God's commands. So what does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looked like for me. For 23 years, I affirmed Jesus as right. I affirmed him as even the king of the kingdom. I knew he was. I knew that you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And yet the truth is, I was blind to the reality that I loved myself supremely above everything else. And I expected that Jesus was just there to help me accomplish what I wanted to do. So let me break it down a little bit more clearly. You can think yourself a Christian and yet not be a Christian. You can affirm it's most important to love God and it's also supremely important to love your neighbor. You can get that right and you can like Jesus and you can still go to hell. 
Do you remember what Jesus had to say to the church in Ephesus? This wasn't John talking. It was John writing, but it was Jesus talking. Revelation 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and, have not, and you have not grown weary. So far, so good, right? I know your Christian life. I know you get your doctrine right, and you can't stand when people get doctrine wrong. But then Jesus says in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to each of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus wanted that church to know and he wants every Christian to know that a part of what he means by conquering so that you can have the tree of life is loving him. You can get your doctrine right and miss love for Jesus. So let me ask you, do you love Jesus? I think if you were to answer that the way that I would have to answer that, it would be yes, but not perfectly. You know, another thing that this scribe seems to miss implied in the question is that if I, can, if I can get a handle on the law of God, then I can be right with God. If I can just know what it is, how to, how to boil down, how to distill the commandments of God into one that I can just work at, then I can do it and God will be pleased with me, right? And Jesus says, well, there's not actually one, there's actually two, which you know, adds one more and sort of further complicates it, but what is two compared to 613? And so the man's thinking, okay, if I've got two commandments, now I know what to do and I can write them everywhere I go. I can make sure I never forget them. But the problem is he doesn't realize he's a sinner and by his nature, he doesn't love God and he doesn't love people. Who is the one and only person who has ever obeyed the greatest commandments perfectly? Jesus. And so, friend, you can think to yourself, well, I've got to work harder at loving God. I've got to work harder at loving people. But what you need to do is realize that Jesus has done that and you can't do it. But if by faith you are in him, then guess what? The righteousness that he has accomplished gets credited to you. 
And then you live within this perfect place of peace with God so that there's no condemnation for you anymore, so that even when you have to rightly say, I love Jesus, but I don't do it perfectly, you can go back to Jesus and you can say, Jesus, please forgive me in the light of your perfect righteousness. Forgive me in the light of the fact that I believe in you, in the light of the fact that I trust you. Forgive me. And then you claim that forgiveness and you go on and you get busy doing the commands of God. Not because you'll do it perfectly, but because Jesus did it perfectly. And because now you, Christian, are in him by faith. So are you in him by faith? Why do you come here? If the answer is not love for Jesus, then you need to reassess your priorities. It is possible to be so close, yet so far away. It is possible to have your theology all lined up and yet not have love for Jesus. There were several names that sort of rose to the top during the Great Awakening. One of those names was John Wesley. John Wesley grew up in a devout family. His father was ordained in the Church of England. His mother taught all of her 19 children the scriptures very, very well. He was a disciplined man. He was a structured man. He taught Greek and logic at, uh, at college in England. Eventually, he was invited to go to Oxford, where he joined a group that was mockingly by non-Christians called the Holy Club. They were called the Holy Club because they devoted themselves every day to at least one hour of prayer and the study of scripture and the evangelization of the lost. In the Holy Club was John's brother, Charles, whose hymns we sometimes sing, and also one of my personal favorites, George Whitfield. From that Holy Club, John Wesley was chosen to go on a mission trip to the United States of America. It wasn't called that then but we won. So take that, England. He was called to go to the Americas to do missionary work toward the Native Americans, and it was a total failure. So much so that in 1735, when he returned back to England, John Wesley wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? You see, even though he was doing all of these things for God, even though he was in the holy club, even though he was on a mission trip, even though he was preaching to the gospel to those who needed it, he knew in the recesses of his heart he himself was not converted. But he didn't know how to get it. Until one day, May 24th, three years later, 1738, he opened his Bible one morning. You know, just kind of one of those randomly open your Bible to a page. And his eye fell on Mark chapter 12, verse 34, where he read Jesus' statement to the man. You are not far 
from the kingdom of God. He took that to mean, first of all, he was not in the kingdom of God, which he already knew. But secondly, he took it to be an encouragement from the Lord to keep going. Keep going, John. Keep going. That night, he went to a gathering of the Holy Club. And afterwards, he wrote these words. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface, Martin Luther's preface, to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley had been under the preaching of the gospel for years. John Wesley had been preaching the gospel for years. But it was one day when at the statement of Jesus, he went to a meeting which he did not really want to go to, but the Lord had called him to. And upon hearing Martin Luther's great introduction and explanation of the gospel based on his very own testimony, when he realized that it's not by my righteousness, but the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. It's by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I have only to grab on to that by faith. He realized it and his heart was filled with warmth. Because instead of trying to work his way into the kingdom, which he had always done, he realized that it's Jesus who gets you into the kingdom. It's the king who is the gate to the kingdom. So dear friend, have you gone through that gate? Have you gone through that gate? It is possible to be close to the kingdom, yet not in the kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you love sinners. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to see the need that we have for you. And we would pray, O Lord, that if anyone's eyes have not yet been opened, that you would open them now to see their need for you. Lord, we ask that you would help us to rejoice in the simple yet profound reality that it's the King who saves. It's the King who brings us into the kingdom. And that king requires that we repent of our sins and put our full trust in him. We rejoice at the gift of our salvation that you've given to us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to treasure it forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.